Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture, bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Kolkata to Casablanca. My name is David Lloyd and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia and Northern Africa or Swana Collective that brings you your weekly half hour of Swana Region Radio. My co-host today is fellow collective member Rana Sharif. Welcome to the show, Rana. Thank you, David. Today, we would like to dedicate our show to the Palestinian families of Sheikh Jarrah in occupied East Jerusalem, to the young and old in Jerusalem who, as we speak, are fighting for their lives. Just yesterday, as Muslims gathered in the second holiest place in the world, the Al-Aqsa compound for prayer during the month of Ramadan, worshippers were tear gassed, shot, and detained. To the Palestinians in Palestine, we salute you and we wish you continued sumud. We turn now to our topic and guest for today, Lu'ayn Al-Basyuni, to discuss the remarkable achievements of a Palestinian scientist in many fields, from medicine to engineering, and how scientists in Palestine managed to work under the adverse conditions of occupation or blockade. But first, a brief update for Swana listeners. Last week, the respected international human rights organization, Human Rights Watch, issued a report that showed that Israel is conducting an apartheid regime across the whole of historic Palestine, from the river to the sea, as they say. In doing so, they merely confirmed what Palestinians themselves and their global solidarity networks have been saying for years, based on the facts on the ground that constitute what the 2002 Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court describes as, I quote, inhumane acts committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. Israel's daily practices, to which it gives the name of hafrada, separation or segregation in Hebrew, give ample evidence of its conformity with that definition, whether we consider the siege of Gaza, the separate and unequal infrastructure of the West Bank, or the ongoing evictions of Palestinian families in occupied East Jerusalem. This is the daily experience of Palestinians wherever they live, from the refugees denied the right to return or even to visit their homelands, to the Palestinian citizens, so-called, of Israel, who live under more than 60 discriminatory laws. However much Israeli politicians and their staunch Zionist defenders, including the Biden administration, bluster about that definition, the steady examination of the facts confirms that Israel is an apartheid state. In the end, their only response can be that of censorship and defamation of the messengers. One aspect of Israel's apartheid that is not often discussed is its direct impact on education and the practice of science in Palestine. Although we have recently begun to hear more of the medical apartheid or vaccine apartheid, and we actually recently had a show here on KPFK that has characterized Israel's discriminatory response to the pandemic. Palestinians are notable for the high respect paid to learning and its schools and universities continue to operate despite the restrictions that Israeli imposes on travel between the various institutions on the West Bank. It's regular denial of important licenses for scientific materials and even books and writing implements, not only to Gaza, but also to universities in the West Bank. All too many Palestinian scientists like astrophysicist Ahmad Barghouti languish in Israeli jails under the indefinite administrative detention. Meanwhile, in Israel itself, a high percentage of the doctors who work in Israeli hospitals and who brought about the miracle of its response to COVID are, in fact, Palestinians. Today, we speak with Lo'ay El-Basyuni about the conditions for Palestinian science under Israeli settler colonialism and apartheid. 
Noel El-Basuni is a Palestinian electrical engineer who grew up in Gaza and finished his post-secondary education from Beit Hanun School. His remarkable journey from Gaza to Mars, that happens to also be his hashtag, his, excuse me, his handle on Twitter, and his achievements have been featured on multiple international media outlets around the world. Luai was part of the NASA team that made history in April 2021, just earlier this year, for flying the Ingenuity helicopter from the surface of Mars, where he was an electrical and power electronics lead for NASA JPL Mars helicopter team. Luai has over 17 years of work experience focused on power electronics in several industries, including automotive, renewable energy, and aerospace. He is currently the senior director of engineering at Astrodyne TDI, a power electronics company. He holds a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, a master of engineering in computer engineering and computer science, and a master of science in electrical engineering from the University of Louisville, Kentucky. His story is a remarkable example of achievement under the most adverse circumstances. Welcome to the show, Luai. Thank you for having me. If you could share with our listeners about your journey to the United States, when did this happen? How did it happen? And how did you ultimately end up at the university in Kentucky? So actually, I, I studied in Gaza from elementary to until like my high school. And after that, I studied English in Gaza and, you know, spent several months. I sent a lot of letters, a lot of different U.S. schools and finally got actually accepted in a university in Nebraska, but I never actually went to in there. And ended up actually in Kentucky because I had some friends there and I went there initially because I had some time before school and, you know, ended up working in some job at Subway, uh, just making sandwiches, you know, to save some money to pay for my tuition. Meanwhile, while I was there, actually, I got accepted in the Denver University of Pennsylvania, but they actually didn't have an electrical engineering, which is something I had a passion since a really young age, uh, working, you know, like, you know, doing um, like I kind of went there for one semester, then I transferred to University of Kentucky. I was there for a few semesters, then actually I had to drop out because, you know, my dad was partially financially supporting me. And he was not able to send me any more money after, like, we got a lot of our orange groves and olive groves all bulldozed in the beginning of the second intifada. So my dad asked us, like, you know, if you could, like, just figure a way to pay your tuition. And so, I mean, after that, I worked for a year and trying to save some money. Eventually, I had to transfer to the University of Louisville uh, a year later, 2002. So 2002 to 2004, I got my bachelor's degree, and then I got my master's degree uh, from University of Louisville. That's kind of a quick summary to finish my college. Loa, you mentioned that, that uh, you always sort of had a passion for electrical engineering. And so I'm really curious, you know, what it was like being a child growing up in Beit Hanun, who had dreams of being an engineer, but presumably you, you must have felt that many options were closed off to you or, or did it not feel like that? I mean, my story kind of started to reverse, you know, because I mean, I, I born in Germany, but I don't really have a German citizenship. I mean, at the age of five and a half, my dad decided to visit Gaza, see if he had potential to find a job there after he graduated, I mean, being a surgeon. But mm. I mean, Israel actually would draw his, like his laissez-passe, which is the Israeli travel document at the time very, I don't know, even really know the exact reasons. And so after that, we kind of got stuck in Gaza. And so I remember myself, I mean, like being basically a German kid, you know, Palestinian, but, you know, just coming from the Western perspective. I remember my first day in, in elementary school, all the kids were running away from an Israeli military jeep passed for the school to one of these houses. And I followed them and I was like, was curious why people were running away from the military. After that, the first intifada started. So you know, we had a lot of strike days, you know, a lot of school was really rough. I mean, our school was suspended. 
you know, there's days where I had curfews like nonstop, you know, so like a lot of time we had to self-educate, study at home to make up for the days we missed on school. I remember one of the years, I think probably was 1990, 91, during the Gulf War, I think our entire school year was like 79 days. I used to keep like track. I used to like track the number of days we were in class. So, I mean, after that, until like almost like my high school, I mean, we were still in the first intifada, so it was the same situation happening, so. So COVID is nothing to you, <laughs> the COVID remote learning situation, I mean. I mean, you know, <laughs> you used to break up the curfew, you know, sneaking, sneaking through the groves. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like so much of the learning is contingency learning and self-taught and how to do things on your own seems to be the way that you cultivated your interests. And this is something that we see and we learn and we hear about, but here you are as somebody who had to actually do that and to kind of propel your career. So what did it mean then for you now, fast forward all these years, to be a lead engineer for a company contract and, you know, and working with NASA JPL. It's a really incredible project. I mean, I have so much, so much pride to work on such a great project that actually, you know, will enter human history. I mean, we'll be the first, I mean, since the Wright brothers until this moment, I mean, this is basically an, another moment in aviation history. I mean, I have so much pride. I mean, I worked on a lot of different things that like prepared me to to get into this thing when I actually started a lot of my career actually in electric vehicles and electric propulsion. I feel like I'm on a mission to improve the world. I mean, I feel like, you know, we're paying big penalties of like for oil, you know, in the Middle East. I mean, without exception, where you at? You know, just uh, I think a lot of the misery is happening there is, is due to oil one way or another. So that I kind of took on myself from the college days that actually I do want to really start a company that actually in alternative energy to make, like to provide different like a different avenue to make oil, maybe like we'll have less wars and stability in the region. What did it mean for you to become a lead engineer for, for a company contracted by NASA or JPL? I mean, I had a lot of experience. So, you know, coming up to that, I mean, my, my title at the time at the company was I was senior staff, power electronic engineer. So I was doing all of the power electronics and most of the motor controllers and like, a, you know, like propulsion systems that used in a lot of the other aircraft. Yeah. I mean, it was really exciting. I mean, I was really excited that I'm going to have a piece of hardware going on Mars. I mean, initially, we were, I don't even think we were like very confident that we actually might go. I mean, because we, we basically were going to hitch a ride with the perseverance. I mean, so, I mean, we had to really succeed. So there was a lot of challenges. I mean, we had to really make sure that we meet everything and be able to demonstrate that success to be able actually to hitch that ride. Well, let me just at this point remind our listeners that KPFK is currently on a fun drive that's essential to continuing to bring you this and other invaluable shows. During this fun drive, please donate whatever you can, great or small. The more you can give, the more you will help others to access this invaluable public service at a time when many cannot contribute. Call 818-985-5735. That's 818 818- 985-KPFK, or just pledge online at kpfk.org at any time. Thank you, David. So um, maybe we could step back a little bit more now, and if you could speak a little bit or provide us with your thoughts, given your own experiences, um, and perhaps your colleagues and friends and other um, young people you grew up with in Gaza, if you could tell us a little bit about the state of science in Palestine, what does that look like? What does it look like to be a young person that could be listening to this and seeing you as an example of somebody who um, was able to 
go to Mars. Um, and if you could talk a little bit about what does this, what is the state of science in Palestine for Palestinians and what are the possibilities and perhaps roadblocks um, that inevitably Palestinians are having to, um, to address as they kind of achieve and reach for the stars. If you've seen the celebration happen in Gaza, uh, as part of me, like, you know, being part of the team and achieving just a great thing. I mean, that kind of tell you the mindset of like Palestinian people in general, like, you know, they have so much respect for science and achievement without regard that who you work for and who you like, who you're doing it for. I mean, we look at things as improvement for all of humanity. So, I mean, since early, early days, I mean, you know, I, mean, I, I think like Palestinian, you know, so in a way you could summarize it, they care about two things in the world, maybe three, you know, it's like, you know, they like to build houses and they like to, and they like to educate their kids. That's what the majority of money Palestinians spend on. I grew up being always motivated to study. I mean, I mean, I have two other engineer brothers and one orthopedic surgeon and my dad is a surgeon. So, I mean, this is just like my immediate family. I mean, if you go to my extended family, they're all engineers or doctors or something. I mean, there's a lot of motivation. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of people who do not really have access. I mean, just like, you know, I mean, I studied in inner West schools. I remember my second grade, I know I was rebuilding the class and we had to study inside of a shed the whole entire school year. There's a lot of issues like that, and including the university. A lot of them do not really have access to like laboratory equipment, things like that because of, you know, blockade. A lot of things are not allowed to come in. So when I speak to engineers who actually study there, they're very strong fundamentally, but then they like struggle with the hands-on because, you know, they don't have access to lab. They don't have access to equipment. I was actually on a delegation. We were literature professors, but we went to Palestine at five years ago now to study conditions for education in Palestine during a period when our association was considering joining the academic boycott. But one of the places we visited actually was not an English department, but the Polytechnic University in Tulkarim. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you, you know of that place. But um, we visited the science labs there, and frankly, it was heartbreaking because they were doing a lot of very valuable research that had actual practical applications, and they were constantly being denied equipment. They couldn't import what they needed. And in one instance, I remember they, they were developing water filtering systems, which is absolutely crucial in, in, in an arid place like Palestine, which is also deprived of water under the, under the occupation. And after long, long delay in Israeli customs, they eventually got the crucial piece of equipment that they needed, and they discovered that along the way, someone had broken it on them. We kept meeting things like this. I wondered if that's the kind of experience that you would have had, or if this is something that's more recent than, you know, the happening since you left, and, and really how how scientists, both students and, and professors or, or practitioners manage under those kinds of conditions? Is, is there an incredible spirit of improvisation and, I don't know, making do, so to speak? I studied here, so, so I mean, I, in the in universities, but I mean, I remember even from like my middle school, elementary, I mean, like, like post-secondary school or high school, like we didn't have access to labs. I mean, all our lab for the classes, like chemistry lab was canceled. I mean, there's a lot of things like actually were like forbidden, you know, you could not even do the, the lab part because like you're not allowed to have any chemical stuff. I mean, anything like that, even like a, something you would use in middle school. There's a lot of restrictions. It's really hard to explain every single thing. And I know like from people who just studied there, they understand that, you know, how difficult it is to get 
oscilloscope, voltmeters, function generators, things like, you know, electrical engineers use in the United States, you know, any college accessible to be able to build like prototypes or do something to actually do some practical work. I mean, we have really great schools. I mean, universities, I mean, in Gaza and the West Bank and some of the top years graduate from there. I was incredibly impressed by the universities that I visited. And indeed, some of them have better facilities in principle than, than, than we do in terms of just the architecture and the classrooms and so forth. But if you don't have the equipment, it's, it's obviously very hard to work. I, I was wondering um, if you can, can speak to the ways that scientists themselves, both in the university and, and elsewhere, have been targeted during the occupation. We mentioned Imad Barghouti, but um, is this something that, that you see happening a lot to your colleagues in Palestine, that, that they're actually arrested for their work or? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't have to even talk about my colleague. I mean, my, my dad was a, you know, was a victim of that. I mean, he was banned from working. I mean, he was a top surgeon wow. from Germany, wow. you know, with the, being like top student in Germany and oh to work in Germany and then go to Palestine, being banned to travel back to Germany and, you know, been banned actually to practice medicine, you know, for years after, you know, I mean, it took him like, you know, I mean, until almost like eight, nine years, you know, I mean, he had to fight and until you open a clinic, like, you know, against the law, you know, and literally sue the Israeli government. But I mean, it's, I mean, like, it's not only in science. I mean, it's just, I think it, this constant harassment, I think it doesn't really stop, but, you know, in all the fields. And even still, Palestinians find way to to continue. So it sounds like even in your own experience, like your own family, like your dad, I mean, to think that you build an entire career. And as you said, as a Palestinian myself, we do value education so much in, in many ways. I mean, my family um, left Palestine, settled in Los Angeles, and you know, I'm second generation, but it's all really because of education and really the opportunity for something better. So to kind of um have that then take it stripped away um is really just an, another layer and and i think you're absolutely right to say that this is not just in the sciences we see this across different disciplines i wanted to ask you about what it means how did you apply like how what is the process of coming to the united states then as a student like well, you know do you like what is it even like to say like i'm going to go study i'd like to apply somewhere um like if you could speak briefly to that experience so, I mean, usually you have to like get an acceptance or you get like a, a, from one of the university and then you go to the to the embassy. So, I mean, actually one of the most challenging thing actually is to be able to go to the embassy because the US, US embassy usually require an interview into the embassy. So back then, like, you know, we could not access to go to Tel Aviv to the embassy because that's the, that's what we the embassy we kind of fall under. Um, and so and that was really difficult so but back then they used to come in once every two weeks to gaza or once a month uh like they used to come they, there's, the, there's a mission used to come to gaza and interview there so and i had to like you know study like get my english good enough i remember the day i went for the interview i mean like they usually have a translator but you know i decided to speak to them in english i think maybe that's what, that kind of what helped me getting my student visa and you know and i had like and you have to get a lot of like financial document that your dad can your parents can support you, things like that. So it's not really that easy, you know, anybody could just apply for it. And so, and, you know, and then like, you know, you know, it took me about eight month process to actually get able to get it. But a few months, like, like a couple of years later, 
the mission stopped coming to Gaza and become like really impossible because I had some friends just went to visit and they could not renew their visa because, you know, you could not go into Israel. So you could not go renew your student visa and you had like one semester left and, you know, you couldn't, and they never finished, you know, they never came back because they could not just reapply again, you know, so it was really difficult. So I guess you don't have any plans to re to revisit Gaza in the immediate future. I mean, I would imagine that if you could just freely travel there, you'd be going back and sharing some of your knowledge and your success with people there. But I, I wonder how, how that, that, if I can ask you this, how this feels to be sort of locked out of where your own family is. I mean, yeah, there's multiple, there's a lot of reasons, like, like, you know, I mean, I mean, there's like blockades, so it's near like impossible to go to Gaza. I'm a US citizen. So to me, it's like, I can travel anywhere in the world, but, you know, I cannot even go to my home country easily, you know, just because I, you know, happen to have a Gaza ID. But uh, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's not a really good feeling. I, mean, I didn't see my parents for almost like 12 years, you know, like from 2000 to 2012, mm -hmm. my parents felt they had to move to Germany you know, to be able to see me and my brother. So, I mean, because to feel freely to travel, I mean, took them at one point, nine months to actually be able to get out of Gaza. I mean, their German visa expired once and they almost expired for the second time while they're waiting for the border to open. I mean, you take a lot of risk by traveling there just because you could get stuck there for multiple months at the time because you can never predict, you know, when the border gonna open, if it open, you know, is your name on the list or it's not on the list to get out and, you know, so it's really difficult. Well, <laughs> let's try not to end on that note, Loi. Um, I just wanted to end by asking you, you know, if um, if this Mars mission um, is going to be something that, that in fact Gazans are going to be able to watch on television or on YouTube and so forth, if you can arrange at least for that. Yeah, I mean, they've been seeing a lot of that following very closely. I mean, I get a lot of people messaging me from Gaza. And I already spoke to the to the Department of uh, the Minister of, In of Education. I had a talk and, you know, I had a lot of young students, like, you know, I mean, a lot of them like in high school or middle school. And I was really impressed with all the young Palestinian girls who were like asking the most intelligent questions. <laughs> you know, so it's like... <laughs> You know. <laughs> well, that's a much that's a much better end note to end on. Um, unfortunately, it's all the time we have for our show today, and I really want to thank you. Our guest today has been Loe Al Basuni, a space engineer and a Palestinian scientist. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Loe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all the time we have on our show today. The Swana Collective would like to thank our guest, Loe Albasuni, and all our shows are available to download at kpfk.org and can be found as podcasts on Spotify and other platforms. Thanks, as always, to Ankina Antaram for post-production and to Kiana Williams on the board today. My name's David Lloyd of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And on behalf of my co-host, Rana Sharif, and all of our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day. Check in with us again next week at the usual time of 1.30 p.m. <laughs> وجه النار أسالم سأقام
Sao không 